Um, we're going to talk about, um, I guess because of what I do now, Pastor John thought it would be great for me to talk about this topic of, of money, and it's an important topic. Jesus talks about money more than any other topic, actually. And so we're going to talk about this title called Good Money Gone Bad, and it comes from Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verse 8 to 20. And uh, what I'll do is I'll read the passage, and then we'll pray, and then we'll get into the word today. Okay, let's, pray. let's look at this together. Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verse 8. If you see in a province the oppression of the poor and the violation of justice and righteousness, do not be amazed at the matter. For the high official is watched by a higher, and there are yet higher ones over them. But this is gain for a land in every way, a king committed to cultivated fields. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This also is vanity. When goods increase, they increase who eat them, and what advantage has their owner but to see them with his eyes? Sweet is the sleep of a laborer, whether he eats little or much, but the full stomach of the rich will not let him sleep. There is a grievous evil that I have seen under the sun. Riches were kept by their owner to his hurt, and those riches were lost in a bad venture. And he is the father of a son, but has nothing in his hand. Verse 15. As he came from his mother's womb, he shall go again. Naked as he came, and shall take nothing for his toil that he may carry away in his hand. This also is a grievous evil. Just as he came, so shall he go. And what gain is there to him who toils for the wind? Moreover, all his days he eats in darkness and much vexation and sickness and anger. Behold, what I have seen to be good and fitting is to eat and drink and find enjoyment in all the toil with which one toils under the sun the few days of his life that God has given him, for this is his lot. Verse 19. Everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possession, land, power to enjoy them, and accept his lot and rejoice in his toil, this is the gift of God. For he will not much remember the days of his life because God keeps him occupied with joy in his heart. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you. We thank you for this opportunity to come together on the Lord's Day. We pray that as we look into your word, that the riches of scripture would really be truth, would be nourishment for our souls. Pray that as we look into this passage, that you would speak to every single one of us. Lord, as many of us struggle with the very things that are talked about in this passage, Lord, as we are lured towards this world every day through the media and commercials, through materialism, through just comparison, we're every day really surrounded by the impact of money in our lives. God, as we think about these things, may you speak to our hearts in a way that helps us to really experience the freedom that this passage offers and the joy that this passage is giving. We pray that you would use these words and you would use the unworthy preacher up here to speak your word today. May fruit come out of our time together. We praise you, we love you, we give you all this time. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Um, there's a famous painting. This painting that you see up here is called The Money Lender and His Wife. 
It's by a Renaissance painter and artist named Quentin Massey's. Now, I've thought about this painting, and I think it's very helpful to think about this. What's going on here is this painting confronts us with the choice that everyone must make between God and money. You have to make that choice. I have to make that choice. Choice between God and money. So the money lender in this painting, think of a banker, maybe a loan shark, I don't know, but he's a money lender. He's sitting at home with a measuring scale and he's counting his money. Basically, it's like when we go on our Fidelity or our Vanguard or our Chase account, whatever it is, and we're looking at our portfolio, our balance. Now, you can't help but notice his wife next to him, she has her Bible open. But is she looking at her Bible? She's distracted by all the money, cha-ching, cha-ching, by all the money being counted. She's turning the pages of the Bible, going through the motions, but where is her heart? Her heart is gazing. Her heart is captivated by the coin in her husband's hand. Masses painted this image to make a point. He himself was living in the city of Antwerp, which had become a center for business and trade. And what he saw was that so easily, money could pull people away from the worship of God. I'm sure none of us struggle with that. I'm sure this is irrelevant for all of us. None of us struggle with money pulling us away from the worship of God, right? This is irrelevant, I'm sure. But, you know, since we're here today, let's just talk about it. You know, the reality is that each one of us, we live with this tension. We know, and you're here for this reason, we know God is worthy of our worship and our whole lives. We know God gave us the free gift of grace through Jesus Christ, his son, dying for us on the cross. We know God wants all of us, all of our hearts, but we can't help but be distracted by the world and everything it offers. Think about the past few days. My goodness, so many emails pointing me to Best Buy and this and that and so many things that just shopping and all these things that are just, you're getting bombarded by and we can't help but to just Look at it and think about it. This book of Ecclesiastes is really about how to live, how to live with wisdom. If you know King Solomon in the Old Testament, King Saul, King David, King Solomon. By the king, time King Solomon is ruling Israel, it is a time of unprecedented wealth, peace, and prosperity. You know, King David... He did all the killing, all the bloodshed, all the wars. So everything was conquered. By the time Solomon takes over, there's nothing but peace. There's no wars to fight. There's just wealth everywhere for him. And so what happens is King Solomon, he's got nothing else to do. So he says, I'm going to have a life experiment. I'm going to indulge myself in everything. I'm going to indulge myself in the best foods he was the ultimate foodie. I'm going to indulge myself in women. He had 300 wives, 700 concubines. I'm going to indulge myself in money. I'm going to experience 
every kind of pleasure that life has to offer. I'm going to pursue it. And that's what he does. And what he's doing here is he's sharing some of his research. He's sharing his findings concerning what happens when you pursue and indulge your life into money. So this is basically his report about this quest to find happiness through money. So what we'll do is we'll talk about this passage from three perspectives, three parts. First of all, we're going to talk about the heart of greed, the heart of greed that we see in this passage. Secondly, we'll talk about some tensions of money. There's a tension of money. And then finally, we'll talk about the redeeming of hearts that we see in this passage. So first of all, we'll talk about the heart of greed. Look at verse 8 and 9. Here's what he says. If you see in a province the oppression of the poor and the violation of justice and righteousness, do not be amazed at the matter. For the high official is watched by a higher, and there are yet higher ones over them. But this is gain for land in every way, a king that is committed to cultivated fields. What's going on here? Solomon wants to show us the vanity of money and begins by talking about injustice that he sees around them. What's going on around him is that people experience injustice because of the greed that exists in the world, greed existing in the societal structures around him. And what he's observing is there's a, there's a system in verse 8 where poor people are oppressed and injustice is taking place. And it's a system where the rich are getting richer by taking advantage of the poor based on their greed. Now, this happens all over the world, even today, doesn't it? You think about maybe communism, where the state has control over everything. Maybe dictatorships, where one person and his family can live a lavish lifestyle while everyone could be dying in poverty. We can see even in the fall of Middle East leaders, Hussein, Gaddafi, had tremendous amounts of wealth hoarded for themselves in their palaces in greed. But it's not just other places. It takes place in capitalism, where profit is pursued as the end goal with no regard for the well-being of their people. It's the problem of greed. Solomon here would tell us, don't be surprised by that. Don't be surprised when you see that going on around all of you, all around us. Now, what he's saying is that this is the reality of life among sinful men. There is greed. Now, this section here is a little confusing because he talks about government hierarchies in verse 8, where the high official is watched by a higher. Now, he seems to be saying that there's a problem with this kind of hierarchy that we're looking at here. But then he contrasts this, saying the best solution is to have a king committed to cultivated fields. So it seems to me like his view is that he's saying society does need a ruler who was wise, like Solomon, who would want the best for his people to prosper and have cultivated fields of their own. And Solomon knows that while he's trying to do this, Many kings would not be doing that, but they would be motivated by greed. This is the reality. 
As long as we live, there will always be people motivated by greed, using positions of power, using opportunities to manipulate, to gain the system, and take advantage of others through greed. Well, we learn from Solomon here, ultimately, that our hope, what he's saying is our hope never ought to be in the systems of the world, in the governments of the world as Christians. Government never solves all of our problems because even the best rulers shall fall short of perfection. But what he's saying is the only hope is a better king. A better king, and that better king brings us a greedless gospel. Think about Isaiah 9-6, especially as approaching Christmas. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. So as Christians, we need to be reminded here that our only hope is the greedless gospel given to us by our benevolent king, the greater king, who is Jesus. It's an invisible kingdom that we are citizens of, and we show others this invisible kingdom with this greedless gospel. So just getting started here, we saw this problem of greed. Now secondly, this is where we're going to dwell. We're going to talk about the tension of money in our lives. Now as we look at verse 10 through 18 in this passage, we're going to walk through these verses and we're going to have some summary statements that I believe Solomon is leading us to concerning our tension with money. Tension of money, of course, is driven by the problem of greed we have, but it's ultimately a hard thing, and we want to look at that. So here's the first tension. The first tension is, I want more money. We have that tension in our lives. You know, you you ever have that feeling like, gosh, what if I just had some more money? What if I just had a larger paycheck? What if a few weeks ago when the lottery was like $1.6 billion, what if I won that? You know, of course, if I take a lump sum, it's only $900 million, but I'm sure I could get by with that. What if I had that? What would my life be like? Have you ever thought about that? Have you ever thought about what you would do if you got $900 million deposited into your bank account? I thought about that a lot. (laughs) You know, have you not thought about it? The problem that Solomon is talking about here, this tension is, we have this thing within us that says, I want more money. Verse 10, he who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This also is vanity. Many of you might know, if you go to New York, there's the Rockefeller Center. John D. Rockefeller was one of the richest men in the world during his days. Someone asked him, Mr. Rockefeller, how much, how much is enough? And he said, just a little more, just a little bit more. I think all of us, we too have this innate desire for just a little bit more. You know, you land a great job, you build wealth, you build your net worth, but there's always this thing I work with retiring people all the time, looking at their retirement plans. Always this thing, I I just wish I had a little bit more. In our sinfulness, we tend to never be satisfied 
and we're always in the mode of craving and wanting more. One author named Jesse O'Neill diagnosed most people living in America with the disease, disease called affluenza. An unhealthy relationship with money, the pursuit of wealth and affluence. And we all have this appetite, wanting more, wanting to buy more, wanting to have more stuff. I've run into some people recently, they're really bad hoarders. And I look at their house, and I've been to their house, and there's stuff everywhere. And they're getting older, there's just stuff everywhere. And they want more stuff, and they buy storage units to get more stuff. It's just this mindset of, I just want a little bit more. And the real question here is, are you satisfied, friends? Are you satisfied with what God has given you in your life right now, right now? You might not want more right now. You're saying, oh, I'm good, but really ask yourself, are you satisfied? Because there are times when we start to crave, we start to desire, and we're not satisfied with what God has given to us no matter what we have. That's the first tension. Another tension that we see revealed in this passage is this. Everyone wants my money. Look at verse 11. Solomon says, when goods increase, when stuff increases, they increase who eat them, and what advantage has their owner but to see them with his eyes? He's saying, when you get more money, what happens? All of a sudden, you got all these friends around you, so-called friends. All of a sudden, these people gather around you and you're popular. That's Solomon's point here. If your goods increase, meaning you have more stuff, then inevitably, the ones who want to use your stuff, eat your food, get your stuff, increase, and these people are gathering around you. Why? Not because they love you, because they love what you have. So the ones who consume it in our life, it might be the government, as you enter a higher tax bracket. If you have children, your children use a lot of it. Other people are always asking you for stuff. And Solomon, remember, he was the wealthiest man in the world at the time. And he knew what it meant that people are always knocking on his door asking for stuff and for money from him. He's warning us, the more you have, the more people will come wanting what you have. You know, think about the prodigal son in Luke 15. Remember, he asked for his father's inheritance, and what does he do? He goes wild. He goes out partying. He's clubbing every night. But when his money runs out, he was buying drinks for everyone. But when his money runs out, what happens? His friends run out too. We're like that as well. When we meet someone and they have money, what happens? The way you see them, the way you act around them, sometimes it changes. You can't help but to treat them differently because we have that desire within us because we want that too. That's a tension that we have. Third tension that Solomon brings up is he says, I can't sleep. I can't sleep because of my money. Verse 12, sweet is the sleep of a laborer, whether he eats little or much, but the full stomach of the rich will not let him sleep. This person described here has a hard time sleeping. 
because their stomach is so full. And what it's doing here, it's comparing one person who's a hard-working laborer who works hard all day long, is tired by the end of the day, and then there's this rich person who is greedily holding and hoarding money, indulging themselves in an unhealthy lifestyle of laziness. And I think what Solomon is pointing out here and reminding us is that how did God create us? When God created Adam and Eve, he created them in the garden as workers to work and to tend the garden. So Solomon is reminding us that God is not glorified just because we come to church, but God is glorified through our working throughout the week. Did you know that our work is worship as well throughout the week? And what he's saying is when you work hard, you worship every day through your work. Sleep is a blessing to those who work hard all day. But the idle, those who live without purpose, they're restless all night because they have simply feasted, fattened themselves, and are suffering from indigestion. Solomon's point here is that being rich has the potential to lead to a lazy life that is unhealthy and you can't even sleep because you sleep in your life instead of being busy with work that is productive and healthy. That's the tension here. Tension number four. He says, I'm miserable. I'm miserable because I lost my money. Here's verse 13. There is a grievous evil that I've seen under the sun. Riches were kept by their owner to his hurt, and those riches were lost in the bad venture. And he is father of a son, but has nothing in his hand. Have you ever had a time when you lost your wallet and there was some cash in it? You know that feeling? It's like miserable, worried. Oh, man, it could be like $5, but you feel miserable. It's not a pleasant thing when you don't have money in your hand and you've lost it. You ever been ripped off? You know that feeling when you've lost it. Solomon is thinking about a man here who made a bad decision, maybe a bad business decision. Maybe he invested all of his money into crypto. Maybe he lost everything, his whole fortune. Sometimes this happens in our life. As a financial planner who works with pastors, believe it or not, there are pastors who have lost much of their retirement because they invested in crypto. It's a reality. Solomon is talking about that kind of person here who has lost their money and they put their hope in this money and now it's gone. You know, Martin Luther said, God permits the very riches in which people trust to bring about the ruin of those who own them. Let me say that again. God permits the very riches the riches in which people trust to bring about the ruin of those who own them. Those riches can bring about our ruin. Maybe for some of us here, maybe you've had relatives, maybe your parents, friends who have lost tons of money for some reason. It could be theft, it could be medical bills, and it's like a devastating tragedy. Now, we of course, we need money because we have to live but what happens is the problem is when we love that money, when you love it and you lose it, you're devastated. I think that makes us incredibly miserable. So the key is 
if you don't love it, even if you were to lose it, it's not as devastating. I think that's Solomon's point. Don't love it because you could lose it. And so your hope is not in this thing that you love here. Also for this person in this passage, this person lost it. Now there's extra pain. Why? Because he's a parent. And this pain, the pain here is that this parent has nothing to give his child as an inheritance. Nothing to leave behind. I'm supposed to provide for my child, but now I can because I lost it. And it was this hope that he had, this love that he had for what was lost. That's the tension here. Tension number five is I wish I could keep money forever. Verse 15, as he came from his mother's womb, he shall go again. I really love this part. Naked as he came and shall take nothing for his toil that he may carry away in his hand. The point here is that no matter how much you may accumulate, no matter how much your investments have grown, and no matter how much your net worth is, when you die, you're not taking it with you. You can have a billion dollars, but you will end up naked and dead just like everyone else. He's saying we are born naked, we die naked, and we take nothing with us. A few weeks ago, I went to a funeral of my cousin, who is just a couple years older than me. My cousin worked for New York Life for about 25 years. He was VP or whatever, he was pretty high up there. Very successful. In his coffin was nothing but him. In his coffin, all the wealth that he amassed, all the stuff, the boat he had, all of that did not go with him to the grave. You know, Job experienced some of this as everything he had in the world was suddenly taken away. And what was his response in Job chapter 1? He says, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. What does he say? I lost everything. But he says, blessed, blessed be the name of the Lord. Apostle Paul in 1 Timothy 6, 7 says, we brought nothing into this world and we can take nothing out of this world. If you know Apple, Steve Jobs who founded Apple, he's famous for the speech given at Stanford. And in this speech, one of my favorite speeches, he talks about the importance of realizing he himself realized that he's going to die because a few years before he had cancer, that he's going to die. And what he's telling the graduates at Stanford, he says, you are already naked. And his point is that you are already on your way, on your way to the grave. So if you realize that, Live in light of that truth, that you are already naked. You are already on your way to the grave. It's unfortunate that Steve Jobs, as brilliant as he was, didn't know the ultimate truth of the gospel. We know eternal truth, so we ought to live and work as ones who are already naked, but one day we will be clothed with the righteousness of Christ. 
So remember, we work hard to build our fortune and be able to do whatever we want. We put so much time and effort into that. But in the end, everything, everything leads to death. That's the point of what all these people are saying. We wish we could keep it forever, but we can't. It's temporary. It's fleeting. It doesn't go to the grave with us. Tension number six. Solomon says, basically, I'm unhappy with or without money. doesn't matter. I'm, I'm just unhappy. Verse 16. This also is a grievous evil, just as he came, so shall he go. And what gain is there to him who toils for the wind? Verse 17, moreover, all these days he eats in darkness in much vexation and sickness and anger. No matter how much we work and toil, we give it our, we give it our all. It seems like all of our life is just filled with problems and sickness and reasons for anger. And the pains of life come, whether you're rich or whether you're poor. Solomon is saying there's no discrimination here. Cancer comes to everyone. Heartache comes to everyone. Relational struggle comes to everyone. Problems of life comes to everyone. No matter what tax bracket you're in, there is no way out. And I think the best attitude that Solomon would want us to have is the one Martin Luther had. Martin Luther says, as I shall forsake my riches when I die, he's saying, when I die, I'm going to forsake my riches, so I forsake them while I'm living. Interesting. Just as I'm going to forsake my riches when I die, when I go to the grave, I'm going to forsake them in my heart now while I'm living. How does he do this? How do we do this? I think we look at what we have and we forsake them. doesn't mean we're just throwing it away. We look at whatever we have and we realize that it is something that God has given to me for a while, for a time, to enjoy, to serve others, to be generous with, to build his kingdom. And ultimately, the attitude is, it's not mine. It's God's. I'm not taking it with me. I'm just entrusted with it for a little while. In other words, we are stewards of the money that God has entrusted with us. It's a, it's not mine mentality. Think about that the next time you log in, you look at your app, you look at your stocks, you look at your accounts. Just remind yourself, say it to yourself, yes, on the paper, on the screen, it says your name. And when the IRS charges you taxes, it's yours, yes. But in your heart, say, it's not mine. It's God's. It's God's. And if we start to think like that just a little bit, it changes the way that we use those things to maybe serve others, to to give to something, to help someone in need. It changes the way we think about the house that we own, So our house is not like a castle with a moat that no one can get across to and it's your kingdom, but rather our house is a place where we open it up and many people are served and loved there. It changes the way we think about our car so that it's not this treasured possession that defines me, 
but it's something that I can use to give someone a ride to church or to help in different ways. It's not mine. It's God's. It changes the way we think about our stuff. We'll never be happy if you say, it's mine. It's my money. We'll never be happy. It's only when we see it as a resource that God has entrusted to us, then we'll start to understand the joy behind these things. One commentator named Phil Riken, who's the president of Wheaton College for a while, he says this, this is a good thing for girls to say about their dolls, boys to say about their video games. It is a good thing for teenagers to say about their clothes and their music. It is a good thing for men and women to say about their houses and cars if they have them. We are headed for eternity. Therefore, we should travel light. We may have stuff in our life, but there's this mindset of we're traveling light. These things do not weigh us down. We are not living to hoard this world, but we're traveling light. It's a great tension for us to think through. So think about these tensions. We all have them. We all struggle with them. Which one do you struggle with the most? Now what we're going to do finally, is we're going to transition to this last point, which is the redeeming of hearts. And I think Solomon is going to help us to understand a better perspective here. Look at verse 19 and 20. Everyone also to whom, whom God has given wealth, remember God has given wealth and possessions, land, power to enjoy them, and to accept his lot and rejoice in his toil, please remember this phrase. This is, this is the gift of God. Okay? We don't have to feel guilty for having stuff, guilty for having wealth. This is the gift of God. For he will not remember the days of his life because God keeps him occupied with joy in his heart. So it almost seems like Solomon is kind of contradicting himself. Do you see that? Because earlier he talks about the vanity of money, but now he's talking about us enjoying wealth, enjoying our possessions. So you wonder, is Solomon here a little bit schizophrenic? It's helpful. Remember, in the previous section, when he's talking about the vanity of money, he hardly mentions God at all in those verses. But now if you look here, starting in verse 18 to 20, around there, Solomon mentions God repeatedly. So I think for Solomon, the difference between these two sections is really whether the money in our lives is God-centered or not. Whether it's God-centered or not. You see, he's saying that without God, it is all meaningless. It is miserable. It is vanity if you are just living for money. But money can be a blessing and gift to be enjoyed when we see it being from God. And we have a God-centered view and redeemed view of it within our hearts. So friends, can I ask you, be honest, how do you see money? How do you see the money that you have in your life? Does money in your life orbit around yourself 
or does it orbit around God? Is the money you earned, is it yours, or do you see it as what God has given and entrusted you with? I think there's validity to enjoying our wealth and possessions when God blesses us with it. You should enjoy it because God has given it to you. But the question is whether or not those things own you. We need to have a balanced view of our earthly possessions. You know, to be very honest, growing up for me also in the Korean American church, being a Korean American pastor, you know, many times there's this thing that I grew up with where sort of poverty and piety and godliness were hand in hand. But I've realized that that is a wrong way to think about things. God gives us many gifts in this life. He gives us gifts not so much that the enjoyment of the gift is the end goal, but so that as we enjoy those things, the giver of those gifts can ultimately be worshipped. It's the worship of the giver when we worship him who gives to us, not the thing itself, not the stuff itself, when we worship the giver, then there's true satisfaction that we can experience. I think Solomon would still argue that everything under the sun, meaning in this world, everything under the sun is meaningless. That's what he says throughout the book of Ecclesiastes. But when we realize that God, who is above the sun, gives us good gifts, there is blessing and satisfaction in enjoying them in a different way. You know, so many of us, we get stuff, we buy things, we want things. Why? Because we think that will give us satisfaction. We think that will make us happy. We use that as an escape. But Solomon is saying, everything under the sun is meaningless unless it's connected to your view of God who is above the sun. This is the gift of God. That's what verse 19 says. So we can think about this gift of God in just three quick ways. Think about gift of provision. God provides for us our daily needs. He wants us to enjoy with satisfaction, physically and spiritually. He provides what we need. We're not worshiping the provision, but we're worshiping the provider. It's a gift of contentment. Verse 19, God has given wealth and possessions, land power to enjoy them, to accept his lot and rejoice. I love the phrase, accept his lot. Some people will be wealthier than others because God gave them. We rejoice in whatever our lot currently is, knowing that this is the gift of God. Not comparing, not saying I want more, but whatever God has given to us now this is our lot, and we learn to rejoice in that for now. God is the one who gives. It's contentment. We realize contentment when we realize all this comes from God. Gift of joy, look at verse 20. God keeps him occupied with joy in his heart. What he's saying here is if God is first in your heart, then you're preoccupied, you're obsessed with God. You ever have that feeling when you want something? Like, let's say my son recently, he really wanted a new iPhone, and he's turning 14, so we said, we're going to buy you a new iPhone. And he is wanting this so badly. 
He's looking at it online. He's craving it and desiring it. He's obsessed with it. He knows every technical feature of it. We get obsessed. But Solomon is saying, imagine if you're obsessed with God. You're preoccupied with him. He has given us all that we need. We experience joy and contentment that this world does not give. This is what it means to be occupied with joy in his heart. This is what Solomon is after for us. I think about Apostle Paul. Remember Apostle Paul in Philippians 4? He says this, I love this. I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low. I know how to abound. In every in any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. That's not someone who's saying, I want more. That's someone saying, where I am right now, I've learned the secret of being content. And what is that secret? His hope was in Christ. He was obsessed with Christ. So wherever he was, he could be happy. You know, in my ministry years, um, I've been privileged to travel to many different countries and places. One of the places I went recently, just a couple years ago, right before COVID started, was Amman, Jordan. And when I was in Amman, Jordan, we were visiting Sudanese refugees. So there's refugees from Sudan, that were living in Amman. They are, they are not privileged there. They have a hard time in that society, but they're refugees. And I remember going to someone's house, doing visitation, and the house is probably as big as that sound booth back there, and we're sitting on the floor. They have nothing. They have nothing. I remember just eating the food that they gave me, and they were, I mean, this is the best of what they had given to us. I mean, even just chunks of meat in there, that is them going all out. But I remember us talking about Jesus and their hope in the gospel. And I remember thinking, gosh, these people are rich. They are wealthy. And even though their circumstances were terrible and dire based on our American standards, these people were content. Why? Because they were obsessed with Christ. For us, we have so much in this world. We are the 1% from a world's perspective. We have so much in this world. But so many of us living in America, living in this life, living in this part of Atlanta, we are not content. We get frustrated. We get discouraged. We get depressed. We are not content. Why? It's not that we need more stuff. It's not that we need more things. It's that we need Christ, and we don't hold on to Christ. Can I encourage you this season, learn the secret of being content no matter what, no matter what you have, whether you get into that school, whether you get that job, whether your paycheck is like this or like this, learn to be content in whatever circumstance you face. Back to this painting that we started with by Quentin Massey's. When you look at this painting, if you remember carefully, both husband and wife, what are they doing? They're going through the Christian motions, right? 
They have a Bible on their table. They're doing their quiet time. They probably went to church that Sunday. But both husband and wife in their hearts are turning away from God to focus on their money. The husband does it obviously, but the woman is very subtle, holding the Bible, but in her heart, she's covering her desire for that money with with Christianity. She's covering it with faith. We do it so well as well. We cover our desire. I go to church every Sunday. I'm in a discipleship group. I do these things. We cover it with our faith. Now, if you look at the table, look carefully. There's a small round mirror, and on this next slide, we're going to zoom in on that mirror. The mirror reflects a little scene that is taking place just outside the frame of the painting. If you look closely at the image in the mirror, you'll see the dark lines of a window frame intersecting to make the form of a cross. See that? You can also see a small figure reaching out for the frame as if to hold on to the cross. Who is this figure? The figure is the artist, Massey's himself. He painted himself in. Massey's has a message here, and he's reminding all of us, just like Solomon, to not look for money to satisfy us in this life. Instead, we are to reach out for the only thing that really satisfies. The cross where Jesus gave his life for all of our greedy sins. He satisfies God's wrath by dying for us. He satisfies our hearts by being all that we need. And so the question today as we leave, brothers and sisters, Will you cling to him? What are you really reaching for? Can I ask you? Let me be honest. Because I've done this myself. During this service, at some point, was there a desire where you received an email and you felt your phone or saw it go? And there's a link to like a store website or something like that. Or you checked your bank account. Something like that. It happens. Really ask yourself, what are you really reaching for in your life if you're honest? Money, material possessions that temporarily satisfy? Or are you reaching for the cross of Jesus Christ that eternally satisfies? For King Solomon, the ultimate experience of life's quest brought him to this conclusion that everything is meaningless under the sun. It's only when I live for life above the sun, life for God, that it has meaning. It's all vanity otherwise. I pray that our church here, this church here, that you would all be people that are not clinging for what the world has to offer you. It will rot, it will get outdated, it will be replaced. But cling for the cross that never perishes, that always satisfies. It's what you're looking for deep in your heart. Pray that you'd cling to it. Let's cling to it together. Let's pray. Before I pray, I'm just going to invite you to take maybe 15 or 20 seconds and just 
Look deep into your heart. Be honest with yourself and be honest with God. Maybe for some of us, we're just a little consumed with the world right now. We're a little consumed with our stuff, our portfolio. We're a little stressed about how the market's doing. Just take a step back. Those things, the stuff in this world, the houses, the cars, the provisions, they are gifts of God. But don't worship those gifts. Don't find your hope in those gifts. See them as a means to serve God, to serve others. And put your hope, your heart's hope, put it in Christ that is steadfast, never changing, never perishing, never failing. Deep in your heart, it is what you are looking for. So just take a moment, just commit yourself saying, Lord, help me. Help me to cling to you, to cling to the cross, to find that I have everything I need. May I be content because I have Christ. Just take a couple moments, maybe 10, 15 seconds more. Pray like that. And I'll close this in a prayer. thank you that you are the provider. You're the provider of all that we need. You give us our daily bread. You give us our provisions. You give us much to enjoy. But Lord, help us to never make these things ultimate things. Help us to never hold on too tightly to these things. But help us to only cling tightly to the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ where we find our ultimate joy, our ultimate satisfaction. Lord, if any of us here are holding on too tight, help us to let go, loosen our grip so that we can embrace Christ. Lord, we thank you for giving us all that we need in Christ so that we can truly experience joy, contentment, and satisfaction through the gospel, the greedless gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you and we praise you. In Jesus' name we pray.